Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle John's revelation of Jesus Christ. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. noticed, but I have a tendency to talk quickly, and I did a lot of quick talking last week because I try to pack a lot of information into these sermons, and I'm always fighting against the clock, and as a consequence, I said several things last week that I then did not proceed to show you from the text so that you know that everything I'm saying is coming right from the text. And so we're going to start this morning by doing some housekeeping, and I'm going to show you some of the things that I asserted last week that need to be proven, because I really have no business saying anything that I can't prove from the Bible when I'm standing here. And so it always bothers me when I hear a message later on and I hear myself assert something and then not prove it. So I heard myself do that last week. In fact, last week I made mention a couple of times of the fact that John was told about a beast who was not but would be again. He used to be. He wasn't during John's time. And he's going to be again. And that is such an important concept that I stressed it a couple times last week. 
which is why you were all nodding to me as I was reminding you. Or maybe you're just trying to convince me that you remember stuff unlike last week. Anyway, so we're going to start this morning by seeing that because I really do want to get that idea planted in your head because that will really help you to understand the succession of kingdoms in the book of Daniel and in the book of Revelation. And it will help you understand that there is this kingdom yet to come. So we're going to start this morning in Revelation 13, right at verse 1 again. I said all that so that you would know that there is purpose for the repetition. There is method to the madness or perhaps madness to the method. Oh, speaking of madness to the method. This is 4th of July weekend, and so pre-COVID, this was the week that I was always in Texas. I would miss two Sundays here at GCA and a Wednesday because I would be baking down in Texas. And uh, I did not go this year. The conference <coughs> did meet this past week, but I did not go for various reasons. The, the travel is not as easy on me now as it used to be. But Elder Greg Wren asked me if I would submit a lecture series. Usually when I do these conferences, I am assigned a topic. But this year, Greg Wren said, just choose a topic and teach on it. And I thought, oh, good, because I've had a topic in the back of my mind for a long time that we have actually touched on here at GCA through the years, so it'll be familiar to most everybody here, but I just never got to lecture on it anywhere, and as a consequence, have never presented it in a systematic fashion. Years ago, I was sitting with David Morris downstairs at Main Street Baptist Church in Lexington, Kentucky, and I was going through some of this stuff and saying to David, drive a truck through this theology for me if you can. If I'm saying anything wrong, show me where I'm wrong. And so I got done with my short presentation to him, and he said, you need to write another book, and you need to title it Seedology. And so I lectured this week on Seedology, and I agreed that Elder Wren would get first crack at it, so last week he posted it on the Saints Chapel website as part of the conference. But then yesterday, I put it up on the GCA website, and I put it on my blog, and I mentioned it on Facebook, just because if I buried it on our website, nobody would know it was there, but if you go to the main salvationbygrace.org website and you click on conference messages and scroll to the bottom, you will find four lessons on seedology. So that gives you plenty of stuff to listen to this week. I just wanted to mention that it existed because I sat at my desk talking to absolutely nobody in front of a microphone for four hours. And that's only worth it if somebody goes and listens to it later. So everybody in Revelation 13 now? Yes. And I stood on the sand of the seashore, and I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns 
and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. Because of what we saw in the book of Daniel, I said that these ten horns represent ten kingdoms, a loose confederation of kingdoms, and that the seven heads, very importantly, represent seven nations that have ever ruled over Jerusalem. It was Egypt, and then Assyria, Babylon, then Medo-Persia, then Greece, then Rome, and then this ten-toed kingdom, which we have yet to see on the face of planet Earth in human history yet. So I offered up that understanding of the seven heads, which is going to help us when we see that one of the heads is wounded unto death and then is revived, comes back to life again. Through the years, as I mentioned last week, whenever any world leader would get shot, people would point at it and say, oh, potentially the Antichrist, especially if they get shot in the head. Well, then people get very excited and say, here comes the Antichrist. But these are kingdoms. These seven heads are kingdoms. And therefore, there is one of those heads that does not exist during John's time and is going to rise again and go into perdition. I'm going to show that to you this morning, and I'm going to show you angelic interpretation that says specifically that the ten horns are ten kingdoms that simply have not had a kingdom yet. So in order to prove all that to you, let's go to Revelation 17. I know we're skipping ahead, but we're going to read a big chunk of Revelation 17 in order to validate, verify what I have been saying. Because with symbols, it's very easy for people to allegorize those symbols and then interpret those symbols in ways that have no correlation to the whole rest of the book. And all I've been trying to do through this study of Revelation is show you that you really can understand the book by just looking at the various references out of the Old Testament and even out of Revelation itself. It interprets itself. There's no reason to make up other interpretations. So we're in Daniel 17. I'm going to start reading at verse 7. And the angel said to me, this is really helpful. The angel is going to interpret for him. Therefore, you don't need to make up any other interpretation. If you come up with any other interpretation than the one that the angel gives you, that would make you, what's that wrong. word? Wrong. That would make you wrong. You know, my wife used that word to be. Wrong. Because of what you said. Yeah. <laughs> High five. <laughs> License. Verse 7, the angel said to me, why do you wonder? I shall tell you the mystery of the woman, we'll get to her later, and the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. What we just read out of chapter 13 was, I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. We're talking about the same beast here. I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, 
which has seven heads and ten horns, the beast that you saw was, past tense, is not, during John's time, during the reign of Domitian, as John is writing this, and is about to come up out of the abyss to go into perdition or into destruction. And those who dwell on the earth will wonder. Now why, this is real specific, pay really close attention to this, why will they wonder at this beast that has come up out of the abyss and gone into perdition? Why will they wonder at it? Well, last week I showed you where Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians and said that God was going to give them a strong delusion so that they would believe the lie so that they would be condemned. You can only be comfortable with that language if you recognize that God is absolutely sovereign and he can do whatever he wants to do. And so he chooses some, he elects some, he takes his church off the planet before his wrath begins. Part of that wrath is this beast who is coming to do destruction and perdition on the planet. And people are going to worship the beast and the false prophet who we're going to look at this morning. They're going to worship because of the signs, because of the miracles they're going to see, and because of the strong delusion that God has placed on them. And the reason that they're doing this is specifically because, according to verse 8, their names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. That's why they don't believe Christ. That's why they do believe in Antichrist, the false prophet. It's very specific here. It's very theological here. It's very sovereign here. The reason that they're still on the earth wondering at the beast is because their names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Did that verse just say that God has names of some people written down in the Lamb's book of life and that he wrote those names down before the foundation of the world. Does the Bible say that? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So there's no way around it. We can't say that people of their own free will or of their own accord decide or choose or make Jesus their Lord and Savior. Instead, we have to conclude that anybody who cares about the Bible or the things of Christ cares about it because God himself, by his grace, by his mercy, chose those people and made that decision before the foundation of the earth. So before he did anything, he already had a plan to save particular people because he knew who those people were that he was going to make and he knew that he was going to save them. And he left some people on the planet whose names were not written in the book of life since the foundation of the world and those people wonder at this beast. They marvel at him. And at the end of verse 8, yet again we are told about this beast when they see the beast, that he was and is not and is to come. So here again, we see this very spiritual description of this beast. He is a demonic power that existed before the time of Rome and then will exist again after the time of Rome, but does not exist at this moment. Last week I asked you, and then didn't have the time to prove it, 
despite my fast talking. I asked you last week, okay, who was the king of Babylon? And you all said, Nebuchadnezzar. That's right. You're correct. Nebuchadnezzar. That's correct. And then I said, Medo-Persia, name the king. Cyrus. Cyrus. And then I said, Greece, name the king. Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great. Now, Rome, name the dominant king. Caesar. Caesar, generally. Yeah, that's an office. That's like saying president. There was a succession of Caesars, but the Bible doesn't make any immediate reference to any particular Caesar. Why? Right here, because the beast, that demonic character, existed before Rome, therefore, He's one of those previous kings, one of the previous demons that drove one of those previous kingdoms. He is not during the time of Rome, during the time of John on Patmos, but he's coming again. That's the scary part. Now, as we look through the book of Daniel, Daniel goes into great detail about the king of the north and the king of the south. We haven't gone through that in this particular study of the book of Revelation. But if you're curious about it, there is a book on our website called A Brief History of the Future in which there is a chapter, a King of the North, King of the South. And you can go into the detail, so much detail, in fact. Daniel predicted in such minutia the political relationship between the leaders of the Seleucid Empire which is the northern empire that encompasses Jerusalem, and the southern, the Ptolemaic Empire, which is Egypt. And over the course of time, they had marriages and alliances and wars and all these politics going on. And David writes about it in such detail that that was the reason that the German higher critics at the end of the 1800s, beginning of the 1900s, that, that is why they said that the book of Daniel has to be a forgery. Because there's just no way that Daniel could know that much intimate detail before it happened. And then it played out over the course of a couple hundred years of human history. Okay, well, that king of the north, king of the south scenario that Daniel lays out tells you very specifically that the Antichrist is going to rise out of the area of the Seleucid Empire. That puts him in what we know is the Middle East right now. That is where this final little horn figure is going to rise out of. Again, if you just let the Bible interpret the Bible, it will tell you these things. You don't need to wildly interpret who you think the Antichrist may be. As a consequence, by the way, of Daniel saying that, I personally think, now this is me personally, oh, and I have no business saying things I can't prove from the Bible. So you're never going to know what I personally think. <laughs> I personally think that it's the spirit that drove Alexander the Great is the one that's coming back again. And as you read, historians marvel at the way that Alexander the Great swept across Europe and through the Middle East. I think that's all going to happen again. I think that helps to explain how it is that this beast to come is going to conquer nations. In fact, we're going to read in a moment 
that of these 10 kings, of these 10 kingdoms, they just give him the authority. When he arrives on the stage of history, he takes three by force, and the rest just go, yes, okay, you get it. You're, you're in charge. And he's going to do it so quickly that there's no way that it is simply human agency that is driving him in accomplishing these things. Here is the way that the angel describes it in speaking to John. He says, the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come out of the abyss and to go into destruction. And those who dwell on the earth will wonder whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that he was and he is not and he will come. Here is the mind that has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Very common within reform circles to interpret that as Rome because Rome is known as the city of seven hills. And as a consequence, people who want to say that the Antichrist is actually the Pope will point at this verse and say, see, the beast with the seven heads is seven mountains, and therefore that means Rome. You know, there are a few other cities that are referred to as cities on seven hills. For instance, Amman, Jordan. Mecca in Saudi Arabia is on seven hills. Tehran in Iran. Tirumala, which is in India, Sheffield, England, Edinburgh, Scotland, Lisbon, Portugal, Nevada City, Nevada. And do you know what the nickname for Cincinnati is? I'll ask the Ohioans. What's the nickname for Cincinnati? City, the city on seven hills. Go look it up. One other city that sits on seven hills, in fact, a city that is surrounded by seven hills, is described in Psalm 125, which says, the first two verses, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. That particular psalm is what's known as a psalm of ascent. It was a psalm that they would recite as they were going up to Jerusalem. It's an interesting thing that as you look all the way through the Bible, when people are outside of Jerusalem and talking about going to Jerusalem, they always say up, up to Jerusalem. I'm going up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem sits among the mountains. Guess how many mountains there are? Seven. What a surprise. I keep telling you this is a really Jewish book. It is Jerusalem-centric here. The seven mountains that surround the ancient city of Jerusalem are Mount Scopus, the Mount of Olives, the Mount of Corruption, Mount Ophel, the original Mount Zion or Moriah, which is today's Temple Mount, the new Mount Zion, or the western hill where the traditional upper room was located, and the peak upon which the Roman Antonia Fortress was built just north of the temple. In other words, any direction you go from Jerusalem, you run into mountains. In fact, Jerusalem is not so much on a mountain as it is in the mountains. 
surrounded by mountain peaks. But then just to eliminate the notion that this is talking about Rome exclusively, what the angel says is, the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits, and they are seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. The seven heads are seven kingdoms that have ever ruled over Jerusalem. During the time that John was writing, five had fallen. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece. That's five. One of them, Rome, was at that very moment. And then there is another one who is yet to come. So that means post the Roman Empire, there is going to be another king, another ten-toed kingdom, a confederation of ten kingdoms that are all going to give their authority to this beast, to the Antichrist when he comes. And the reason I know that hasn't happened yet is that you'd have to name one since Rome. And no fair going to like Nero, because that's Rome. That's during Rome. That's during the time, and in fact, it's after the time that John is on the Isle of Patmos. So Nero doesn't accomplish it. Instead, there is one kingdom, five have fallen, one now is, that's Rome. And then there is this other one who has not yet come, says verse 10. And when he comes, he must remain for a little while. How long is that time? Three and a half years. How many months is that? 42 months. How many days is that? 1260. 1260. Okay, good. These are seven kings. Five have fallen. One is. The other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. And the beast which was and is not. Here's that reference again. This is the third reference to the fact that this beast is a demonic being who at one time was here on planet Earth is not during the time that John is on the planet, and then is going to come again. And this beast, which was and is not, is himself also an eighth. In other words, what he's saying is there's going to be a human leader, but then that human leader is going to be possessed, and so that beast, that demonic character, is actually an eighth, but he's one of the seven. He himself is also an eighth and is one of the seven. And once again, and he goes into perdition. Verse 12. And the ten horns which you saw are ten kings which have not yet received a kingdom. But they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. Why such a short time? Because they give the authority to the beast. Once he appears on the stage of history, they give him the authority. So the ten horns are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom. And to this very day, they have not received a kingdom because we can't identify them anywhere in history. They have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. 
These have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. I just want you to see that I wasn't making any of this up. I know I've been saying this for the last couple of weeks. This is the way that I have been describing what we have been seeing in the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation. I'm just glad that the book of Revelation took the time to spell it out this specifically so that you can see that I, I'm not making anything up. I'm just reciting what the Bible, in fact, says. Verse 14. These, the ten-nation kingdom will wage war against the Lamb. Okay, that's a time clue. If you're going to say that those ten kingdoms are ten Caesars, let's say, and that the final beast ruler is Rome, and Nero is the Antichrist, when and where did they do battle with the Lamb of God? Well, that's a tough one to say. By the way, it has to be this kind of demonic influence in order for there to be a battle all the way to the Lamb of God. Do you remember what we saw in the book of Daniel just a couple of weeks ago when an angel, after listening to Daniel praying for 21 days, comes to Daniel and says, we heard your prayer the moment you prayed it. And I was sent to come and answer your question, but I was withstood by the king of Persia. And then Michael, your angel, the defender of your people, came to help me. He's holding the prince of Persia at bay right now so that I could get to you. And now I'm going to go back and beat up on him. And lo, the prince of Grisha comes. Okay, those are spiritual entities. Those are demonic wars happening in the heavenlies. It's going to happen again. Because these ten kings who are going to get their power and authority from the beast who comes up out of the abyss, who get their power collectively from the dragon who is Satan, these will wage war against the lamb. And I like how brief John is on this one. It's a given. And the lamb will overcome them. Why? Because he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And those who are with him are the called and the chosen and the faithful. Okay, so when did Christ ever come back with his called elect faithful and beat up on the kings of this earth? Hasn't when did that happen? Hasn't happened. hasn't happened yet. The Bible says it's going to happen. Verse 15, and he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. Okay, that helps because we read in chapter 13 that the beast comes up out of the waters. So now we know that the beast comes up out of the peoples and the multitudes and the nations and the tongues. Verse 16, and the ten horns which you saw and the beast these will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. For God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose. Man, that's a very sovereign verse. We're talking about evil demonic entities here. We're talking about world rulers who are driven by Satan himself. And you would think if any group of people 
could do whatever they wanted to do, it would be that group of people. And yet what we read is that God has put it in their collective hearts to execute his purpose. And what is their purpose? To punish Jerusalem. That's why this time of trouble, this tribulation period, is referred to by Jeremiah as the time of Jacob's trouble. And Jeremiah says, but he'll survive through it. And same thing here. The same way that he used Babylon to punish Judah. The same way that he used Assyria to punish the ten northern tribes. The same way that he used Greece or Rome in order to keep his people under his hand of punishment. He has protected his people through all of those incursions, through all of those Gentile nations that have ever attacked him. He's going to do the same thing here. The same way that he said to Cyrus, even though you haven't known me, I've placed it in your heart to let my people go back and rebuild my temple and rebuild my city. And twice says, but you haven't known me. Okay, that's the same sovereign God who's being talked about here who can put it in the hearts of evil, demonic, worldly kingdoms to do his purpose, to execute his plan because he yet again is punishing his people Israel. For God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose. They're also going to want to do that. I, I just love that language. They're going to have a common purpose with God in order to accomplish the purpose of God. Therefore, they're going to think that they are accomplishing their own purpose without seeing that they're actually accomplishing the very purpose of God. Stuff just doesn't get more sovereign than that. Stuff. That was the word with which I described the whole of human history. It's stuff. And God is sovereign over the stuff of human history. God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdoms to the beast. Until, until when? Until the words of God should be fulfilled. Because in the end, it's the word of God that always wins out. Regardless of what human beings want to do, regardless of what choices you think you're independently making, regardless of what the world does as it rocks and reels right now, as it's enmeshed in all of these political machinations and the evil that drives men's hearts, people are accomplishing exactly what God determined they were going to do. How do I know that? Well, for the last 20 years, you've heard me say, cheer up, saints, it's going to get worse. How did I know that? Because the Bible says so. Now it's getting worse. No surprise, because the world is accomplishing exactly what God said in advance was going to be accomplished. These 10 kings are going to have power with the beast, they're going to get their power and authority from Satan himself. They're going to do their purpose and execute the purpose of God until the word of God is completely fulfilled. Wow. As opposed to an amen, that is an appropriate moment for a wow. And the woman who you saw 
is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. As I said, we'll get to her in a couple of weeks. Go back to chapter 13 now. Now do you see why last week I kept emphasizing the beast that was and is not and is to come? In chapter 17, that phraseology is used three times. And it is very specific that it is a beast that comes up out of the abyss. So we're not talking about a human here. We're not talking about a person who, under their own volition, decides to go out conquering. We're talking about a beast who comes up out of the abyss, who obviously then is a demonic power, who is represented by one of the seven heads, and he is not during John's time, and he will be again. That's why he is described as being wounded mortally in his head, and then comes to life again. And everybody wonders at him because he is this demonic beast whom God has given the people of the earth and given them a strong delusion so that they will believe the lie, so that they will worship the beast, so that they will be condemned. That's how sovereign our God is. That was all introduction. We are now to chapter 13, after I drink some mysterious blue liquid. <laughs> Ming asked me a couple weeks ago, she said, what, what are you drinking up there? It's Gatorade. That's all it is, it's Gatorade. It's, no, it's nothing mysterious. I bring my own Gatorade, because those of you who came here today expecting coffee, oh, too bad. <laughs> coffee maker's broke. We're going to have to buy a new one. Oh, well, no coffee for you. Gatorade for me. I've heard that flavor described as blue. Whatever blue. It does. It tastes very blue. <laughs> it is. Revelation chapter 13. Are you there? I gave you enough time. He stood on the sand of the seashore, and I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. Good, now we know what the sea is. It's all peoples, languages, tongues, not Israel. I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. The seven heads are the seven historic kingdoms that ever ruled over the Middle East, and specifically over Jerusalem. The ten horns with the ten diadems are the ten kings that are yet to come. Verse 2. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth was like the mouth of a lion. We talked about that last week. The connection to a leopard connects him to Alexander the Great. And since it says here, the beast that I saw was like the leopard, it's one of the reasons, one of the internal indices that drive me to believe that the particular demonic beast that's coming again is the same beast that drove Alexander the Great, who during John's time was not because he was in the abyss, which is where we read he's coming back out of. And anybody who comes up out of the abyss is not somebody you want to hang around with. 
And then his feet were like those of a bear that plants him in the area of Medo-Persia, that plants him in Iraq, Iran, Turkey, Transjordan, that area of the Middle East. His mouth was like the mouth of a lion. He's going to speak from Babylon. And boy, the Babylon speak permeates our society right now. If you pay attention, you'll be surprised at the amount of Babylon talk that goes on in the world. Anytime you hear anybody preaching anything other than Christ, that's mystery false religion. Come straight from Babylon. And the dragon, who's the dragon? Satan. And Satan gave him his power, and Satan gave him his throne, and gave him great authority. So whoever this demonic beast is, Satan himself gives him his throne, his power, his authority. And I saw one of his heads, very important, what do the heads represent? Kingdoms. Kingdoms. Not people. It's not Ronald Reagan. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain and his fatal wound was healed. In chapter 17, that's just described as he was, he is not because of the mortal wound, but he's coming again. Okay, the wound is healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. It's the same thing we read in chapter 17. And why are they all amazed and following after this beast? Because God has given them a strong delusion so that they will believe the lie, so that they will be condemned. And they, this is astounding, verse 4, and they worshipped the dragon. In other words, as they're doing obeisance, and as they're worshipping, we may not get to the false prophet this morning, but what you're going to see is that the false prophet is the driving force behind causing the image of the beast, the abomination of desolation, standing in the temple where it should not be. That statue of the beast is going to come to life and speak because of the demonic power of the false prophet. It is the false prophet who causes everybody Everybody, rich or poor, free or bond, everybody has to do obeisance to the beast. They have to bow and worship the beast. Or killed. Those are your options. Those are your choices. And in so doing, according to verse 4 here, when they worship this beast or his image or the number of his name, they are actually worshiping Satan. Now, all the way back in the book of Isaiah... We read that Satan's fall from heaven was a result of the fact that he wanted to be worshipped like God. Satan has always wanted the kind of reverence and worship that God alone deserves. So naturally, once the church is off the planet, naturally, once the earth is only populated by people whose names are not written in the Lamb's Book of Life since before the foundation of the world, naturally, he would make sure that his beast, who he is controlling, is the object of worship. But then look at the contrast. As people are worshiping this beast, because he's going to be doing great miracles, and one of the things that he's going to do, according to Daniel, is unlike his forefathers, Unlike anybody before him, 
he's going to divide the spoils of his wars with all the people. Socialism run amok. Oh, yeah, what's the leading political desire going on in the world right now? Oh, that's right, socialism. That's what people are longing for right now. No surprise that this beast is going to be the ultimate embodiment of socialism. Daniel says so. I just stuck the name socialism on it, but Daniel describes him as doing something that no one else has ever done. He's going to share the wealth from his battles with all the common people. Can you see why people are going to love him? Not only is he going to make sure that everybody has sufficient to get through life, but then he's going to start calling down fire from the sky, and people are going to get down on their face in front of him. And they worship the dragon because he, the dragon, gave his authority to the beast. So when they're worshiping the beast, they're actually worshiping the dragon. And they worship the beast saying, who is like the beast? And who is able to wage war with him? Well, yes, after all 10 kings, give him the authority, give him the power. He's now the dominant world ruler. Then yes, the people on the planet are going to be saying, well, who's like him? Who could take him down? Who would even dare to go to war with him? Who's able to wage war with him? Verse 5, and there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act, no surprise, for 42 months was given to him. It's the same way that Paul describes him in the Thessalonian letter where Paul says that he's going to be speaking these arrogant words against the Most High God. So the description of him is very consistent. Because he is demonic, he is also going to blaspheme the very God of heaven. And even in his blasphemy against God, the people of the earth are going to be worshiping him. Can anybody think, just off the top of your head, real quickly, can you think of anything in our society that's going on right now that might be called blasphemous? Hollywood. <laughs> that was easy, huh? Yeah, just easy, yeah. But is anybody doing anything about it? No, in fact, the world is flocking to it. Whatever you just thought of, whether it's the profanation of marriage, whether it's the things in the Old Testament that are referred to very obviously as blasphemies against God, sexual blasphemies, well, that's Hollywood again. I'll tell you, I have a very high tolerance having grown up in rock and roll. I have a very high tolerance for language. And I make my living through words. I was an English major. I, I like language. I like words. And I have a high tolerance for words that aren't uh, good for mixed company. And so when I'm watching a movie or TV or on the internet or something, and people use colorful language, it irks me because I think it's lazy. If you can't make your point without using that kind of language, then you're not really a very good writer or creator. But aside from just being intellectually lazy, I can usually kind of roll with it. Like, OK. In fact, every once in a while, people will use a colorful word with me. And then they remember that I'm a preacher. And then they apologize 
for the fact that they just, and they always say this, sorry, I spoke French. There was no French to it at all. It was English words that I understood perfectly. And then they always feel that they need to apologize to me. And I say, these are words I've heard. But I'll tell you, I will turn off the TV instantly when I hear the name of Jesus Christ used as a swear word. And interestingly, the networks that still have some standards, which are very few, but some of the broadcast networks that bleep stuff will bleep the colorful words I'm mentioning. They never, ever bleep the blasphemies against Jesus Christ that run rampant over the airwaves. I mean, how many commandments do you get into it before God says, don't take my name in vain? And it's happening constantly. And as if the name of Jesus Christ was not sufficient, people add extra epithets to that so that they can make even more blasphemous phrases out of it. And I have been watching shows that I thought, yeah, okay, okay. And then that happens. I turn it off because I am aware that I am sitting in the presence of God Almighty. And if I heard it, he heard it. So now how am I going to react to that? Am I going to go, hey, no big deal, God. Or am I going to take sides with God and say, nope, I can't be part of this world. The blasphemy, imagine the blasphemy that a beast out of the abyss can come up with. And he is going to blaspheme and speak ill of God, the creator of heaven and earth. And even as he is blaspheming God, the people of the earth are worshiping him. And by doing so, worshiping Satan himself. That's a dark picture. There was given to him, verse 5, a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme the name of God. Okay, so quick, which commandment is that? First commandment, you'll have no other gods before me. Second commandment, you'll make no graven images. Third commandment, don't take my name in vain. The first three start with, I'm the only God. Don't make idols and worship them, which they're doing here. And don't take my name in vain, which they're doing here. They break all three of the first commandments. The very first things that God said to people, don't do these three things. They're going to do all three of them. They have a God before God. They blaspheme the God of heaven. And they're worshiping an idol. It's astounding how corrupt this moment in time is going to be. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name. And his tabernacle. That's the heavenly tabernacle. And then for some reason, the NASB adds two words that if you have an NASB or in italics, strike them out because they change the meaning of the verse here. They said, and his tabernacle, that is those who dwell in heaven. That was an interpretation by the NASB translators. What it actually says in the Greek was that they blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, those who dwell in heaven. It's three groups. So he's going to blaspheme all those who are saved. 
He's going to blaspheme the holiest place, the tabernacle of God, and blaspheme the very name of God. And it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. Okay, this is my last point for the morning, and we will wrap up with this verse. Turn back to Daniel 7 for a moment, because it is very common for people to read what we just read out of Revelation 13 and verse 7, and read that he, the Antichrist, is going to make war with the saints, and whenever they see the word saints, they instantly think, church. See, the church is going to go through the tribulation. They're still going to be here on the planet because the Antichrist is going to make war with the saints. Except you have to remember that this is a very, very Jewish book. And Daniel explains this exact encounter with the same details and refers to the saints in Daniel 7. And he's obviously not referring to the church. He's obviously referring to Israel. So Daniel 7, I'm going to start reading at verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. I approached one of those who were standing by, and I began asking him the exact meaning of all this. So he told me, and he made known to me the interpretation of these things. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. But the saints, okay, so who is Daniel referring to there? Does he mean the church at that moment? No. Does he mean Gentiles who believe in Christ at that moment? No. No, he's talking about the saints who are part of Israel. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. Then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with the teeth of iron and its claws of bronze, which devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with his feet, and the meaning of the ten horns that were on his head. Does that sound familiar? Yes. I told you, Daniel's describing the same thing we just read out of Revelation. And the meaning of the ten horns which were on his head, and the other horn which came up, and before which three of them fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts, which was larger in appearance than its associates. So this is the language of this horn, who then grows up in appearance larger than the others. Apparently he takes three of them by force, and the other seven are just going to give him the authority I kept looking, says verse 21, I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. Okay, so then what are the chances that in Revelation, this very, very Jewish book, in chapter 13, verse 7, it says, and it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And Daniel says, that he made war with the saints and was overpowering them. What are the chances that Daniel and John are talking about the exact same thing? Pretty good. So all I'm trying to show you by that little exercise 
is that the word saints in the book of Revelation, John is simply saying the exact same thing that Daniel before him has said, and it is not a reference to the church. It is certainly not evidence or proof that the church is going to be here while God is pouring out his wrath. But then let's read the rest of this chapter because this is a good way to finish our morning. After all that bad news and all that demonic talk and all that blasphemy talk, starting at verse 21, I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until... That's a great place to put an until. He only gets to do it until God decides it's over, until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one, and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. And thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth. By the way, you have to remember here the time that Daniel is receiving this vision. These four kings run successively from there. Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, ten-toed kingdom. Thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, and it will be different from all the other kingdoms, and it will devour the whole earth, and it will tread down, and it will crush it. And as for these ten horns, out of these kingdoms, ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones, and will subdue three kings, and he will speak out against the Most High, and wear down the saints of the highest one, and he will intend to make alterations in God's times and in the law. And they will be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. Does that all sound familiar to you now? Do you see the relationship between Daniel and Revelation and how they're talking about the exact same thing? And if you read them both and understand them both, they'll explain each other to you. But, verse 26... But the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. It's good to know the end of the story. And then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms of this earth under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one because his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and the dominions will serve and obey him. And at this point, the revelation ended. And as for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarmed in me and my face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. I'm looking forward to the day that the sovereignty and the dominion and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one because his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all these other worldly dominions, all these other worldly powers, everybody else that seems to have any name on planet earth, every one of them are going to bow down and do obeisance and serve the king of kings when he gets here to establish his kingdom that will never end. That's a great ending to this story. And why is it going to end that way? Because God is sovereign and knows exactly what he's doing. Even at this very moment, as the world continues to look just absolutely stupid everywhere you turn, God knows what he's doing. This is all part and parcel of those labor pains. He's just building it up and building it up. And then one day, the world is going to be ripe for the picking. 
He's going to take his church out of here. And the rest of the world is going to be handed over to that beast. And you don't want to be here when that happens. Run to Christ. Jesus himself is the only escape, not only from your sin, not only from the wrath of God, but from a future on this planet that is nothing but horrific. Run to Christ. Do you now have a better understanding of the language I started using last week? The Bible spells it all out for you. We just have to keep our puzzle pieces connected the way the Bible connects them. You will also notice that at no point in either of these weeks reading that chapter that is so very full of symbols, you'll notice at no point did I have to allegorize, explain away, or make up anything because the Bible told us what it all means. That's the way to study the Bible.
Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.